Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Friday, October 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Scientists at Boston University recently created in a lab a new COVID virus that had the transmissibility of the Omicron variant and was also more likely to cause severe disease. They called it the Omicron S-bearing virus. The study found that the engineered virus had a mortality rate of 80%. The experiment has once again called into question the purpose of so-called gain-of-function research and also oversight on such projects. Kelsey Piper, senior writer at Vox's Future Perfect, joins us for why labs keep making dangerous viruses. Next, AI art generators have just been unleashed on the public. These new text-to-image generators let you type in almost any phrase and it will return an image in various art styles. Dolly 2 by OpenAI and Dream Studio by Stability AI are now open for anyone to use and the result is a lot of fun. The artificial intelligence interprets your words and creates fully original images, but there's still a lot of questions over how it works, copyright, and who owns the images. Then there are concerns about real artists and graphic designers. Joanna Stern, senior personal tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what the future of AI art may hold. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Taking a virus that isn't transmissible in humans and making it more transmissible, or in this case, taking a virus that's very transmissible and splicing it with a virus that's less transmissible but more deadly until you get something that is both transmissible and deadly. Joining us now is Kelsey Piper, senior writer at Vox's Future Perfect. Thanks for joining us, Kelsey. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, we have a, a big overarching question why do labs keep making more dangerous viruses? Uh, you know, there was a recent story coming out of Boston Univers University where they decided to see if they can engineer in a lab a new COVID virus. They even gave it a name. They called it the Omicron S-bearing virus. And what they were able to do was make one that was just as contagious as Omicron, which we all know now was one of the most contagious versions of it. But it was also likely to cause more severe disease. I think when the what they were working in with mice and everything, it uh, had a mortality rate of 80%. So <laughs> the question begs, like, why do we keep doing this? Why are we making things more dangerous? So Kelsey, help us walk through some of this. What do we know? Yeah. So this is like a longstanding sort of discussion in virology is that a lot of research involves, in some respects, making viruses more dangerous, like taking a virus that isn't transmissible in humans and making it more transmissible, or in this case, taking a virus 
that's very transmissible and splicing it with a virus that's less transmissible but more deadly until you get something that is both transmissible and deadly. And I don't want to say that that work has no value or anything like that. Like there is some legitimate scientific stuff that we learn from conducting research like this. But yeah, it carries very real risks. And for, uh, you know, a long time, even with the coronavirus, with COVID-19, the the pandemic that we went through, a lot of people thought that that's exactly how this happened. You know, they were working on viruses. They made COVID-19, basically. It got loose. And, you know, then, boom, we're stuck in a pandemic. Uh, you know, they call it gain-of-function research. And, you know, for as I mentioned, for a long time, people thought maybe that's how it got out. Yeah. And to be clear, well, we don't know that a lab accident caused COVID, and there's been some recent research sort of pointing in the direction of a natural origin for COVID. Lab accidents are absolutely not a conspiracy theory or a crazy sci-fi scenario. Lab accidents happen all the time. We know of a recent one, actually, like less than a year ago in Taiwan. They had contained COVID. They didn't have any COVID in Taiwan. And they had a woman catch COVID who was working in a BSL-3 lab, which is like a pretty high security biology lab. But she was exposed to COVID. She caught COVID. She exposed 110 people without knowing any specific incident to have been caused by it. Lab leaks happen, and they can really put a whole population at risk very, very fast. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a huge concern there. And so um, as far as the Boston University research that they just conducted on on this virus, you know, what did they say for their part? Because they released a paper, obviously, on it and everything. What did they say the goal was? What were they working toward? So the goal is pretty straightforward. People are curious, why is Omicron so much more transmissible than earlier variants of COVID? And why is it milder? So by creating this kind of hybrid virus and then checking, you know, does it maintain the high transmissibility of Omicron and is it more deadly like the original one, then that means that the genes they spliced, the genes they identified, are the ones driving the change in the behavior of the virus. And that can be really, really good to know. You know, it's useful to understand like, okay, these are the genes that are driving at least some of why this viral variant behaves differently from other variants. So I definitely don't want to say we should never do research like that, just that our existing system like does not allow appropriate caution, doesn't allow appropriate oversight, like doesn't really conduct those cost-benefit analyses in a really thoughtful way. And in that research specifically, I guess the virus, uh, while the, although it had a high, higher mortality rate, they said it wasn't as strong necessarily as the original COVID-19. So in their defense, part of it too, where they're saying, well, it's not really gain-of-function research because we didn't make something worse than what the original was. Of Boston University's response. And I think a lot of what's happening is they were sort of taken aback. They, they were sort of caught flat footed. The funders hadn't known that this research was happening. A lot of people like learned from the news. And then, of course, there's like outrage at Boston University from people in the Boston community who are like, did you put us in danger? So their response was sort of, this isn't gain of function. Like, okay, it killed 80% of mice, but the original COVID killed 100% of the same kind of mouse. This is a kind of mouse that is especially engineered to be vulnerable to COVID because researchers can learn faster if their animal models are more vulnerable to the disease or whatever. So I don't think the answer they gave is very good. I don't think that it makes sense to say, okay, we made this virus as transmissible as Omicron, but more deadly, closer to the deadliness of original COVID. But since we didn't get it quite as deadly as original COVID, it's fine. Like, 
the dangerousness of a virus is a product of both how transmissible it is and how deadly it is. And they moved that combination forward, even if it's still a little less deadly than standard COVID. Plus, before they did this research, they didn't know what results they were going to get. They could have gotten a virus that was even deadlier than original COVID. Because when you're doing this kind of research, the whole point is that you're doing it because you don't understand what result you're going to get until you do it. So I think that Boston University's defense is like a little bit of them being caught flat-footed and (laughs) not really knowing what to say here. I don't think it's like a very good answer. And so where does the government stand on these types of issues, these types of research? I know the National Institutes of Health was funding some of this stuff before. They, They put a moratorium on it. They brought it back in a different way. You know, where do they stand on it? Yes. So this has been a long-running debate. It used to be that the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, which funds most bio-research, would fund not just this kind of research, which, you know, I think should absolutely proceed under some circumstances, but also research that's, like, way more dangerous than this, like research to just invent a new hyper-deadly flu. Then after 2014, when there were a bunch of biosafety incidents, including, like, discovering smallpox in an abandoned, like, section of a lab and accidentally sending anthrax to some people. A bunch of different stuff went really wrong and we sort of had a rethinking of biosafety and that involved a moratorium on gain of function on potentially pandemic pathogens, this dangerous research we're talking about. That got lifted in the Trump administration in favor of sort of new framework for when that research gets conducted. But the problem with the framework is that it sort of only gets applied if people are identifying their research as gain-of-function research and they're applying through NIH to funding. And so work like this just never gets to that stage of oversight at all. No one evaluated this work through this framework. It might have passed or it might be that they would have like suggested some easy things that could be done to make sure this work was safer and had the appropriate oversight, but it just didn't get referred to the oversight at all. Kelsey Piper, senior writer at Vox's Future Perfect. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Let's <laughs> go.
sort of a, a little bit like a canvas painting of a monkey talking into a studio microphone and he's wearing blue headphones. And I got that image within a couple of seconds by just typing into my computer, monkey recording a podcast. Joining us now is Joanna Stern, senior personal tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Joanna. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I've had the pleasure of playing around with these AI art generators for a little bit of time now. We're talking about Doll E2, and there's another one called Dream Studio. There's a few others, obviously, but this is kind of this new wave of text-to-image generators. You can really type in almost anything and get an image out of this. And man, I've had a blast playing with these things. It's really limited by your imagination. Sometimes you get stumped and don't even know what else to put in these boxes to just come up with some funny pictures and all that. But there's a lot of questions around these things. You know, as I mentioned, the results are really fun and amazing, but there's uh, um, questions about copyright. There's all sorts of stuff that comes into play with this. The future of photographers and and other artists and things like that. So, Joanna, you've been playing around with these as well. Tell us uh, your experience with these, and then we'll get into some of these top questions that a lot of people have. I feel the same way as you. I have been working on this story. I would say working on this story in quotes because I did not feel like I was working at all. (laughs) It is so fun to play around with these tools. And as you mentioned, one of them is called Dolly 2, which is a play on Wally, right, from Pixar's animated film, and then Salvador Dolly, which is the surrealist artist. So the OpenAI company made this tool where, as you described, you put in any text you want or pretty much any text you want, and out comes a couple of seconds later an image of what you've written. A couple of examples of ones that I have just sort of had a lot of fun with. I'm looking right now at a, speaking of being on a podcast, a monkey recording a podcast. <laughs> I love that picture, I, yeah. It's actually, it's a picture you looking like on the other side. <laughs> um, so out is an actual picture. It's an illustrated image. I'll try to describe it. It's sort of a, a little bit like a canvas painting of a monkey talking into a studio microphone, and he's wearing blue headphones. And I got that image within a couple of seconds by just typing into my computer, monkey recording a podcast. Yeah, And, if and you got, no human was involved in making that image. Yeah, it was it, all artificial intelligence. Let's get down to how these images are actually made. We know that these AI generators are fed a bunch of images. It's very categorized. And obviously, they use a lot of algorithms to figure this stuff out. But how do they create these fully original images? The best way I had it explained to me, and as I explained it in both my video and the column, is that the AI, the artificial intelligence sitting on the servers of OpenAI, which runs Dolly, or Stability AI, which runs the other service I touched on in my piece called Dream Studio, these AIs have been taught pretty much what everything looks like. And they've been taught that by looking at, as I say in the piece, flashcards. This is a great way to sort of explain it. When we teach kids what things are, we look at flashcards, an image of something, and then the word next to it. And so that's what the AI has been looking at. But it's been looking at hundreds and millions and hundreds of millions of these types of images. And so it's learned what pretty much anything looks like. So if you type in the word cup, it knows what a cup looks like. And then it uses a complex process called diffusion, where it turns that well first it turns that word it tries to explain it tries to understand what that word cup means right it understands what a cup is then it uses this process called diffusion to turn a cloud of pixels basically into an image of what it thinks this cup should look like and it's a very complex back-end technology 
And it then allows you to put things together. So let's say a cup of coffee sitting on a desk. It knows what a desk looks like. And it knows that it has seen cups sitting on desks. And then you get an image that looks like a cup sitting on a desk. One of the biggest questions that I saw swirling around when these things were, you know, in beta forms, not everybody had access to them yet, was about copyrights and ownership with these images. And as you mentioned, right, you're describing a process to teach the machine what these things are. They're grabbing them from all over the Internet. You know, what if that image they used was a copyrighted image beforehand? And then the image generator gives you something similar to that. So open AI for Dolly 2 and stability AI for Dream Studio. What do they say for their part, at least on, on the copyright? right side of things and, and who owns that image after it's been generated? They're pretty clear about this, right? They say when you've created this image, well, then it's your image. You've used our systems, but you now own this image to go do what you would like with it. OpenAI is more specific in the sense that it really is trying to, through its terms and services and its policies, to make those who share these images make people aware that this was an image generated by AI. Try not to fool people into thinking, hey, that image you made is made by a real human. And so that's a really important part of this all. As we now start to see more and more AI art and images across the Internet, how will we know if a human made it or AI made it? And that's sort of a gray area because the companies can't force people to do that. But in this case, OpenAI is definitely recommending that people do that in the sense of where are the images coming from, the data sets of was that made from copyright images, right? Did those flashcards have copyrighted images? That's a big question area. Uh, OpenAI won't actually talk about or won't divulge what data set they are using of the images. They just say they are using hundreds of millions of images. Stability AI has been a little bit more open about that to say, yeah, they're using images they have gathered from across the internet. You can't really generate just anything. There are some limits. I think Dolly 2 has a few more limits in place rather than uh, Dream Studio does, but they don't, uh, you know, on, on Dolly 2 side, um, you can't uh, put images of uh, public figures or you can't do any explicit content. You know, obviously that protects everything else. So you can't get just about everything, but it, it is pretty open. Exactly, exactly. I mean, one of the, my favorite images that I've made is Elon Musk holding a Twitter bird as a pet, <laughs> as you would expect he has would have now. And I was able to only make that using Stability AI's Dream Studio. It, that image was made through there, but I can't make that in Dolly because Dolly does restrict the ability to use public figures in the prompts. Or you can type it in, but you will get an error or you'll get a message saying, we can't process this because it doesn't meet our, our guidelines. You can put names in. I put my name into Dolly and out came a woman that does not look like me and does not really even <laughs> right. look human. But it is trying to prevent media manipulation and disinformation and deep fakes of popular public figures. Right now, a lot of the images, I don't want to say crude, but, you know, they don't hold up to, you know, a, a purely a, a photographic image, something that was set up and done by a real photographer with real sets and real people and everything. You can kind of tell that it's kind of a, an AI thing. It's not a particularly perfect. And then again, you know, when you're putting these prompts into the machine, you know, it doesn't always give you exactly what you want. Sometimes it's a little hit and miss. Sometimes it's right in line with what kind of you were expecting in your mind. Sometimes not so much. Totally. And that's the fun of it, I think, is there's just this thrill when you punch in that prompt. What are you going to get back? Is this going to be something that's great or is it going to be something that kind of looks a little sketchy and funny? I definitely suggest if you guys are using this at home, try putting in 
dogs, different types of dog breeds, dogs (laughs) doing random things. You will get back funny and sometimes terrifying things. And so the big open-ended question now, what is the future of AI art and these tools that are that we're getting now? We're seeing companies like Microsoft is a big supporter of uh, OpenAI's Dolly 2, and they're going to start putting that into some of their search engine stuff, some of the stuff they're doing with Bing. So more companies are getting on board. A lot more people are starting to use it. What's the future of all this? I think if there is a app or a website that you currently use to share content, That might be Facebook, that might be Snapchat, that might be TikTok, that might be Instagram. This type of tool is coming for those apps. This is a fast, fun way to generate content. The big question is, what are going to be some of those restrictions? How do they prevent some of these tools from getting out of control? But these types of tools are absolutely coming to more and more of our fingertips. And the future of what we see is questioning Is that made by a human or is that made by AI? It's kind of like a perfect meme generator. Now you don't need to get the picture from a movie or something. You just type it in and create it outright, you know, exactly the way you want it. And what do um, artists say on on their part of things? Artists, other, uh, you know, uh, people that deal in this type of stuff? Because you can put in any type of specific art. You know, you want an impressionist photo. You want a realistic image, all that stuff. What are artists feeling with these new tools? a mixed reaction. Of course, the companies behind this all, I talked with one person from Microsoft who was saying, well, this is just another great tool for creators. And that's certainly what I've talked or I've found when I've talked to some creators, whether they be animators or illustrators, they're playing around with this and saying, this gave me an idea for something, or I can take this image from this, from what was generated in Dolly and put it into something and animate it in a cool way. So it sort of heightens their current work. But then there's the flip side that if you are in the business of making original custom drawings or animations, can this do that work and take your work from you? And I think that that question remains to be seen. But for the most part, people I've spoken to at this point feel like there's going to be some sort of melding of the talents. And even the tools like Adobe or Shutterstock, which many of these creators use, if you're in a professional creating environment, whether you're an animator or illustrator, you're often going to those types of tools. Those companies are starting to figure out how to work this in as well. Joanna Stern, senior personal tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.